Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. Most weeks, a part of our liturgy is to include a moment when we remember um, that we give uh, offerings to the Lord, and uh, we determine to live on less, to give God more, to support His kingdom, but to also, in gratitude, honor Him for every good gift that we have. And we don't take an offering anymore because most of us give online, but we want to remind you that you can give online, or there's offering boxes in the back uh, as you leave and uh, we thank you for your generous support of the work here at Waterstone. I wanted to say a brief prayer over our offerings and um, the offerings of the churches around us this morning here in uh, Littleton Lakewood Highlands Ranch. You who transform the water into wine, who transforms one small meal into food sufficient for thousands, we ask for your transforming power to grace these given gifts. May these gifts become extraordinary by the power of your love. May they become healing. May they become good news. May they become hope. And again, together we say, Amen. Amen. We continue our journey through um, First and original and authentic Christianity as it sweeps in an unprecedented way across an empire deigned and designed by Jesus himself. With these words in Acts chapter 1, he launched a movement. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the movement continues Today, here we are, it's still powered. We're going to dive into that interesting story that uh, Taryn read, but before we do um, this, how many of you know baseball season's just around the corner? Yeah. You can tell with that uh, lighthearted response that the Colorado Rockies are the team around here, but we're still excited, you know, uh, for... Um, for Little League through Major League, you know that what the most important part of spring training is, right? Picking your walk-up song. When you go up to bat, the music plays. Well, we were talking and preaching planning this week, and we wondered what it'd be like if preachers had walk-up songs. <laughs> and so I've actually selected one for the morning. I'm going to play it for you, and uh, we're going to do this. Here we go. Here we go. Uh, I'm going to ask Catherine, you did not expect this when you came, and her smile just left her face. <laughs> Catherine, I need you to be the announcer. Are you willing to do that with this mic? Okay. So like you, know, you say, like, now preaching Larry Renault. Now preaching Larry
wasn't sure how that was going to go. Thank you for going along with it. That was a bucket list thing for me, you know. I can, I can be done now. Um, that, uh, that's Elvin Bishop. The name of that album is Booty Bumping. The name of that song is What the Hell is Going On? I hope by the end of the message, you'll understand why I chose that song and who really is asking that question. Let's dive in to our text. Luke is covering a 30-year period from basically the ascension of Jesus Christ to uh, the death of the apostle Paul, his imprisonment uh, in chapter 28 there in Rome, 30 years. But what we know and what we have to remember is that a lot of things happened in those 30 years. And what Luke is doing is being selective because he couldn't possibly tell everything that happened over that period of time. So he's choosing stories for a purpose. And that purpose is this, the mission matters most. That's what Luke wants us to see with these stories. And now the story exclusively focused on the end of life for the apostle Paul. Paul has become like a model, an archetype for how the church is going to be received in the world. The church is called to be a witness to the reality of a risen Jesus and a new reality and a coming restoration of all things. We like to say it around here as kingdom come. That's the reality, but what we see in the model of Paul is that that good news is not always received well, that there will be resistance, that there will be pushback from government and from family and from friends and from culture and from religions, but mission matters most, meaning that the church will endure and this is an unstoppable movement that can't help but try to persuade people that Christ can be home. So in this idea we're putting up, before the powerful elites of his time, Paul demonstrates that the mission matters most because the risen Christ leads an unstoppable movement. I want to talk about this idea of an unstoppable movement. Our text is actually four chapters, 23 through 26. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach a four-chapter message at length of time. I'm going to look at the first scene in chapter 23 into 24, and then the last scene, which was read for us earlier. This first scene, when we left Paul last week, he had been arrested in Jerusalem. He'd gone to Jerusalem to take an offering there from all the churches because Jerusalem was in a famine and the church was really struggling. So he brought this offering to the church, but he also was a Jew. And Romans 10 talks about Paul pouring out tears day and night for his people. He wanted them to know Jesus. So he goes back to Jerusalem. He's actually in the temple performing an act of prayer and worship when the text says some Jews from Asia spot him and they start yelling out, false accusations. It causes a huge ruckus, and the Roman guard has to sweep in and basically rescue Paul and get him out of that situation. Uh, the next morning, there's an assassination plot 
uncovered. Forty conspirators have made a vow that they will, <laughs> they will not eat or drink until Paul's dead. So under cover of night, 470 Roman soldiers evacuate Paul from Jerusalem and they take him to a prison about 70 miles away in the provincial capital of the province of Judea in a town called Caesarea. So Paul is now in prison in Caesarea and he will be there held for no legal purposes for two years. Wow, two years in prison, an innocent man. When he gets to Caesarea, he has to appear before the Roman governor of the whole province. His name is Felix. Felix is an interesting biography to study. We don't have time to study, but you could go back and read an ancient Roman historian named Tacitus, or you could read an ancient Jewish historian named Josephus, and you would find that Felix is a man who was born as a slave. But through sheer force of will and a ruthless inclination to brutality, he gets his freedom from slavery and rises up to where he becomes the governor of the Judean province. Let's understand this. He's in the C-suite of the Roman emperor. He has Nero on speed dial. He's up there. Paul is brought in. He appears before Felix. The Jews in Jerusalem had sent the high priest and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they make their case to Felix. And they say three things. First, Paul is guilty of sedition. He has stirred up havoc all over the empire. It's interesting, the Greek word that Tertullus uses, a brilliant lawyer, um, preaching to the heart, not the head, you know. I don't want to disparage any lawyers in the room uh, about that. But he says, this guy, this Paul, he's a disease. He's a plague in the empire. First charge, sedition. Second charge, to the Jewish side, He's a heretic. He, he believes in heresy. He's talking about this Jesus who has risen from the dead, and he's taking the gospel to the Gentiles. He's, like, denigrating our religion. He's a heretic. Third charge, he desecrated the temple. He was in the temple, and he was doing bad things, and that's why this riot started. Well, Paul makes his defense to Felix with a very, in contrast, very concise uh, economic uh, approach to words, and he basically says, as to the first charge, sedition, I'm a Roman citizen. Uh, I have loved people all over the empire, and by the way, I was never here long enough to foment any kind of revolt that you're talking about. Charge number two, I'm not against the Jewish uh, scriptures. I'm saying that Jesus fulfills to you the, the Jewish scriptures, and he's what the prophets were talking about. I am not a heretic. I believe in them, and Jesus is the fulfillment. And then third, desecrate the temple. I love this. Paul says, I didn't start it. They did. They did. Felix at that moment knows. He knows that this is an innocent man. He says he's done nothing, not only nothing guilty of death, but he's done nothing guilty of being in prison. But, the text says, because Felix was a, I almost said, politician. I, I don't want to put all politicians in one sweep. Seriously, he was just a corrupt politician. Let's say that. He wanted a bribe. He made, Paul brought an offering to the Jewish people. He can give a little to me. Um, and he also wanted to curry favor with this Jewish 
segment of the province of Judea. So he keeps Paul in prison. But here's what's interesting. Look at what happens in chapter 24, verses 22. Several days after Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, more on her in a moment, Drusilla, remember her name, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and listened to him talk as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, here it is. Sit in this for a moment with me. Felix was afraid (laughs) and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. John Stott, the great commentator, he wrote this great book uh, on Acts. He said, sit in this moment for a moment. I mean, this is Felix. He has Nero on speed dial. He's part of a province that the entire empire, three million square miles. Felix is a big part of that. And he is afraid. John Stott says, this is like butterfly versus steamroller. And the steamroller's backing up. Felix is afraid of a single solitary dissident in chains. What is going on? In a word, Drusilla. In two words, his wife. Drusilla is the sister of the king of the Jews named Agrippa II. More on him in the last scene. Drusilla, her father, is Agrippa I, who in Acts chapter 12 has one of the original disciples, James, beheaded to try and stop the movement. And at the end of that chapter, God is so upset with him that he kills him, it says, the angel of the Lord was sent to drop him dead where he stood, and worms ate his body. Acts chapter 12. The Bible is such interesting reading. Her grandfather was Herod the Tetrarch, who put John the Baptist's head on a plate. Her great-grandfather was Herod the Great, who, when Jesus was born, was so threatened by him, he hunted down all the baby boys in Bethlehem and slaughtered them. But Jesus and his family and Mary and Joseph had become refugees in Egypt. Do you get the sense of what's happening here? Four generations of the Herodian dynasty had tried to stop Jesus and stop the movement, and they couldn't do it. Do you get the idea that Drusilla wanted to hear more and more and more about all of this from Paul? Because here's now a guy who's claiming to have talked to Jesus on the other side of the grave. And Felix was afraid. Do you know that during this two-year imprisonment, Paul was busy writing letters. We know them as Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and 2 Timothy. And you know right now, current setting, these letters that he wrote during this imprisonment today are read by billions of people. The Word of God is unchained. Let's bring it forward 
this unstoppable movement that makes governors ask, what the hell is going on? In the most recent, uh, one of the magazines I love to read and would recommend, mainly because it focuses on global Christianity, not just American Christianity. Um, We are part of a global movement. And we see in this latest issue how unstoppable this movement is. So Christianity Today embedded a reporter with several Baptist churches in the Ukraine over the last year. In the Baptist Union, there are 2,000, I'm sorry, 2,200 pastors in the Baptist Union of the Ukraine. 2,000 of the 2,200 stayed in their church during this war. And the other 200 mostly left for reasons outside of the war. Do you, let me say this again. 2,000 of the 2,200 pastors in the Ukraine stayed in their churches even those that are now occupied by the Russian aggression. These churches report that most of their people who stayed could stay, but what's happening every week is that 30 to 40 unbelievers are attending their church. Again, I feel I need to say that again. Every week, 30 to 40 unbelievers are attending church in the Ukraine. Just the Baptists. (laughs) An unstoppable movement. They, uh, They interviewed one young guy in his 30s. He's a pastor named James. James described their worship service. They have their singing like we do. They have their preaching like we do. Their services are three hours long like ours aren't. We could try that today. (laughs) But they have added a new element to their liturgy. Everyone stays after the preaching, and they prepare meals and feed food bags for the people in their town who don't have food. That is a part of their worship service now. So James says, older women poured rice into little sacks for distribution. A cook who lost his restaurant simmered cabbage and mashed potatoes in the church kitchen. James' wife was on her feet all day, running between homeschooling her kids and serving the hungry. A dozen volunteers formed a human chain linking a delivery truck to the church storage room, unloading bags of food donated by other churches. Outside, boom, boom, boom. Russian rockets thundered off and on, so frequent that they blur into the background like traffic horns. Do you miss the old services, I ask? No, said James without hesitation. Before, the people here were already believers. Now, we see people who have never heard the gospel. Mission matters most. She goes on, this reporter. Don't you ever regret staying in Kherson? That's their town. It's Russian-occupied. Regret? No. No, never, James said. We are on God's front lines. We are ready to meet God at any moment. I'm asking you, how do you stop that? The next article 
in Nepal. How many of you know where Nepal is? Near Mount Everest, known for the climbing community. In 1970, in 1970, there were 500 baptized believers. Today, there are an estimated 50,000 Christians in Nepal. Do you know how that's happened? Gossip. Women holy gossiping Jesus. Here's the story of Tanaja Gale. She sees a young woman on the street in Kathmandu and told, tells her she's beautiful. The women, women started weeping. Her husband had beaten her the same morning and told her that she was the worst human in the world. When I tell women you are so beautiful, Gale, who owns a salon, says they are shocked and want to know what beauty I see in them and that their loved ones have never seen or acknowledged. It is then that they are ready to hear about the God who loves them unconditionally. Gail talks to women who come in for her services or she goes out to women's shelters or the red light district and invites women to tea. She says, I stay in touch with them. But above all, we pray for them. Women pray a lot here. For leaders, for families, for the Nepali society, and it is because of prayer that the evangelical movement in Nepal has grown. Mission matters most, and this is an unstoppable movement. One more. I uh, told Julianne Cusick, who plays keyboards, she's going to Indiana University, likely to be a music major. I told her I was going to talk about her alma mater future uh, now. In the Indi Indiana University, there's a movement. Uh, this is true of many universities around our country. They are full of Chinese dissidents. Chinese who are, are refugee or who are here also just because they've been invited. There's thousands and thousands of Chinese college students in the United States. A guy with InterVarsity named Stephen Tang started in 2019 a movement he calls Boba Jesus. How many of you like Boba Tea? Oh, I thought, actually, I thought I'd get a better reception than that. You need to try it. Boba Tea. On Indiana University, he puts posters up all over the campus. Boba Jesus. Come and ask any question about him. And thousands of Chinese college students have been showing up to hear about Boba Jesus. I'm telling you, it is an unstoppable movement that we are a part of. So what I'd like to do is two things. One, would you tell us your stories? I know you have stories about how you've spoken Jesus into a conversation, how you've demonstrated his love, justice, and mercy. We need stories to tell to encourage one another to see that unstoppable movement here. Would you send us your stories? Second, I actually want us to sit for, for 10 seconds with a question. We're going to put it on the screen. How would our witness change if we believed we are part of an unstoppable movement of God.
Come, Holy Spirit. So, uh, next slide, Tara. Here's where we are. Before the powerful elites of his time, Paul demonstrates that the mission matters most because the risen Christ leads an unstoppable movement. That seeks to persuade everyone to find their home with him. I'd like to talk about persuasion. That Christian, Christians and the Christian movement cannot help but be persuasive. So what happens, two-year period that Paul's in prison, Felix gets recalled, believe it or not, for being too cruel of a, of a leader. He, he stomped down a, a riot in Syria and got in big trouble with Nero. And so he's replaced by a guy named Festus. Any Gunsmoke fans in the house? There's my cultural reference for the, for the morning. Festus. Google it. Google it. Um, Festus comes in and he wants to curry favor with the Jews. He goes to Jerusalem. They tell him about Paul. He's, he's like a stone in the shoe that won't go away. And so Festus comes back and says, Paul, how about we send you down to Jerusalem? We'll put you on trial in Jerusalem. Paul says two things. First, nope, that's a death sentence. It's not time yet. Because second, in Acts 23.11, as Paul Joslin talked about last week, Jesus himself appeared to Paul and said it's going to end in Rome, not Jerusalem. So I'm not going back to Jerusalem. So Festus keeps him in jail to curry favor. But um, he knows, it was, oh, and, uh, what, I, for, what happened then when Paul says no, he also says, I appeal to the emperor. I'm a Roman citizen. I appeal to the emperor. And Festus says, you appeal to the emperor, to the emperor you'll go. And so now Festus has to write a letter to Nero explaining this whole Paul situation. And it just so happens that a few days later, here's the name, do you remember? King Agrippa II, Drusilla's brother, and their other sister Bernice, Queen Bernice, come to Caesarea, and they meet Festus, and Festus says, King Agrippa, can you please, 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 please help me write this letter to Nero? Let's interview this guy, Paul. And so picture this in your imagination. They're in the praetorium in Herod's palace, marble pillars, marble floors, pomp, circumstance. Is that right? Pomp and circumstance. Uh, pageantry, purple, gold, they're all seated, Jewish dignitaries, Roman dignitaries. In comes the Queen Bernice, in comes Festus, in comes King Agrippa II, and in comes Paul in shackles and chains. Agrippa points to Paul and says, you can talk. And Paul tells his story as, as Taryn read, how he was converted, how he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, how he wanted to stop the movement too. But then the resurrected Jesus appeared to him and said, Paul, what are you doing? You're, you're working against me. You're working against the mission. And Paul is converted by Jesus, but as soon as he mentions the resurrection, Festus, a pagan who has no idea of any of this, he interrupts, and let's read it. It's just kind of funny what happens here. These are my favorite verses in the book of Acts, by the way. At this point, Festus interrupts Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul. Now, that's a very kind translation. <laughs> a better translation would be, you're nuts. 
You're nuts. You're, the literal Greek word is ah mind. You're without a mind. Your elevator does not go to the top floor. <laughs> Your great learning has driving you insane. Paul says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. More on that in a moment. Can we go to the next slide, Tara? Then, well, what Paul does in the verse between is he says, Agrippa, you know these things. Agrippa says to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? My favorite verse right here. Paul replies, because we see his motive. His motive is not to defend himself. His motive is to persuade. Look, short time or long, <laughs> I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today, everyone in the room, may become what I am except for the change. Paul's motive, mission matters most, is to persuade everyone in the room that Jesus has risen from the dead. Let's talk about persuasion for a minute, shall we? Just a minute. Persuasion is like the history of the last 300 years of advertising. You have actually sat through a half, uh, half hour of constant persuasion in February when you watched the halftime show of the Super Bowl. Persuasion. Now, if you study the last 300 years of history, you'll know that persuasion began in the Enlightenment period and the Enlightenment, all the writers and people who were trying to persuade in the Enlightenment basically said, look, if we can just prove it, then people will believe it. If we can just share the facts, we'll persuade people to believe. Empirical rationalism, right? If you just prove, and even, even today you run into people, well, if you prove it to me, I'll believe it. That's Enlightenment thinking. And quick couple scenes. So you see Thomas Jefferson, our forefather, cutting out the miracles of the New Testament. Why? Because the goal of the Enlightenment was to get religion and faith out of it, and if we can all just agree on the true facts, we'll have consensus, and then we'll flourish. How did we do with Thomas Jefferson's approach? Not so great. 1700s, the great Scottish economist, Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations, he said, that what we need to do and get everyone to believe, take religion out of it, but if everyone just believes that the key to a flourishing society is what? Unbridled capitalism. The unseen hand of the market. If everyone will agree on that, we're good. The 1800s come, and another profound thinker, a German philosopher named Karl Marx in Das Kapitas, what's he say? No, it's this. Centralize the economy, centralize the government, Get everyone on the same page, and then we'll flourish. How has either one of those worked? We're still bouncing back between them. Every four years, every eight years. Enlightenment thinking, which is just to prove it, the intellect, it doesn't work. Now, there's strengths to it. It makes progress. No kidding. But it doesn't work completely. So what we've seen in the last hundred years is a swinging of the pendulum away from this idea of empirical rationalism, just prove it to me, to this idea of socialized knowledge. Socialized knowledge goes like this. Well, it's not so much whether you prove it to me or not, but if I like someone, or if I want to be part of their group, that's what persuades me to a truth. 
We see this play out a lot in our families, right? We raise our kids well. We dedicate them, raise them up in the Christian faith. They go to the university, and what happens? Some of the foundations get shaken, and uh, they fall in love with a bald-headed guy with a ponytail, with a tweed suit coat and slick jeans with a rip in them and wearing Birkenstocks, and they say, this guy, what he says, that is so cool. I mean, he's calling everything I grew up with naive and a fairy tale, but uh, I, I like that group, and I want to be part of that. You see, socialized knowledge is really not so much about prove it to me. It's about belonging. Can I get into the cool group? That's persuasion. So it speaks not so much to the mind, but to the heart, a place to belong. Are you still with me out there? Sorry, we went way off on some of this. Let's get to Paul, right? Let's get to Paul. How does Paul persuade everyone in the room? He appeals to the mind and the heart. The mind, when he says to Festus, you know, Festus interrupts and says, Paul, you're nuts. What does Paul say? And notice who he says it to. He doesn't respond back to Festus. He responds to Agrippa. And he says, Agrippa, you know this. This was not done in a corner. 25 years ago, Jesus was still alive, and Agrippa, your great-grandfather, was in charge, and you know all these stories. He's appealing to what? Evidence. He's appealing to witnesses. The Gospel of John includes about two dozen miracles, but at the end of it, John says, if I were to write every day that happened with Jesus, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain him, and we are finding that true. Books today, do you know how many books are published on Jesus every year? Neither do I, because they're uncountable. They're uncountable. The books and all the world cannot contain all that Jesus did. And we don't even know all that Jesus did. The point being that Agrippa, he knew people from 25 years ago who saw Lazarus raised from the dead. John 11, Lazarus is raised up. What we forget is that in John 12, there's a dinner before the Palm Sunday and Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, there's a dinner, maybe they called it resurrection dinner, and Lazarus was there with his sisters, and the Jewish people got so scared and angry that they tried to kill Lazarus and Jesus. And it says the whole city, John 12, was shook up. You don't think there was anyone 25 years later who didn't remember that? Agrippa, you know, this was not done in a corner. My point is this, Christianity appeals to the intellect. It says there's evidence. In Paul's day, you could talk to people, over 500 people who actually saw the risen Jesus. Talk to them, Paul says. It sits on evidence. It sits on the testimony of this book, the most historically documented book in the history of the world. Christianity rests on evidence. So let me say this, some of you seeking, some of you watching online, I hear a lot that, you know, I don't like Christianity because of what it teaches about sexuality. I don't like Christianity about what it teaches about gender. I don't like Christianity because of what it teaches about, you know, whatever. I don't like it. I would say two things to you. One, that's good because you found a big God and you're not going to agree with him on everything. If you do agree on him with everything, you've made him in your image. But second, what was my second point? 
Oh, I got it. I got it. Sorry. <laughs> it sits on evidence. Oh, man, I lost it again. It's, I got it. <laughs> the first question you ask when you come to Christianity, here it is, is not whether you like it or not. The first question you ask is, did it happen? Thank you for helping me with that. Did it happen? That's the first question. Was there an actual Jesus? What did he say? What did he do? That's the first question. We start there. Paul appeals to the mind, and lastly, he appeals to the heart. He says in chapter 26, verse 18, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That word place is the word home or portion, that our home is with God. In other words, Paul is shooting now for their heart, and he's saying, look, we all spend our lives chasing something that we think will settle our heart, that will be home for us. We chase work, we chase family, we chase romantic, apocalyptic love, we chase money, we chase power, all these things we chase. Paul himself chased it hard before Jesus appeared to him. And Paul says, look, I have finally found someone and something that in my heart is home. The thing I've been looking for all of my life. The minute you become a Christian, you not only get forgiveness of sins, but you get a family. You get to sit at a table with Jesus. You find someone who accepts you no matter what you've done. He loves you, he forgives you, and he wants to be with you. You get home. So here it is. It all comes to this. Picture this with me. After the encounter, Paul goes back to his home sitting in a jail, chained. He is soon either going to be beheaded or fed to lions. We don't know how Paul died. He died in Rome. He has no retirement fund. He does not have a vacation home on the south of France. He really dies with nothing. There's Paul. Or you could go home with Agrippa II and his sister Bernice, and they're sitting around the marbled halls of the Praetorium. They have a table, they have filet mignon, beef, well done, no pink. <laughs> Robes, clothes, freedom, life. Paul dies in prison. Agrippa II and Queen Bernice die in all that they have. Who's got the better life? If the resurrection is true, Paul has the better life. And that's what Luke wants us to see. 
and believe. Make of it what you will. What the hell is going on? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which changes every equation. Thank you for his invitation that even now in this moment, no matter who we are, what we've done, where we're coming from, if we look to him as the living Lord and say, I'm yours. I want you. I need you. I've tried everything else. And we come to him and say, I'm yours. Then we have life. Eternal life now. Home now. So anyone here in the room, in this moment, just say, Jesus, I'm yours. Welcome home. Amen.